1: or text Wondery Pod to
3: 500-500. Did you enjoy your time as mayor? Loved every minute of it.
4: Piloting his helicopter, Mike Bloomberg gave us an aerial tour of the city he helped shape. But most days you'll find him in the gleaming, Oz-like tower that bears his company's name. We asked him how he managed to accumulate $47 billion, why he decided not to run for president, And how he's getting along with the new president, considering their testy past.
3: I'm a New Yorker, and I know a con when I see one.
4: Have you spoken to Trump since he's in the White House?
5: People are screaming, break up the Ninth Circuit. Take a look at how many times they have been overturned with their terrible decisions. Take
2: a look. Tonight we talk with a prominent and controversial judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals.
6: You are being unreasonable.
2: Alex Kaczynski, a conservative appointed by President Reagan.
6: Bam. My advice would be to whoever is going after judges by name, whether it's the president or anybody else. I think it's a terrible idea. I don't think it's a very smart thing to do.
5: We're riding with jockey Eric Peretz.
7: Come on, Tony.
5: It's one of the many races in the fall and spring when timber jockeys roam the rolling hills of Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania in the run-up to the Maryland Hunt Cup.
8: Give me some fruit!
5: The sport originated in Ireland 250 years ago when horsemen raced through the countryside jumping hedges along the way. You're approaching a five-foot fence. What's in your head?
7: Well, number one, you hope you've been living, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper.
5: I'm Charlie Rose. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes.
3: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
4: The name Bloomberg is a worldwide brand that could refer to a number of things, a cable channel, a radio network, a news service, a magazine, or a 75-year-old former mayor of New York who founded the Bloomberg financial media empire and flirted with running for president. According to Forbes magazine, Michael Bloomberg is the eighth richest man in the world and one of a growing number of extremely wealthy people who plan to give most of their money away releasing a torrent of private philanthropy that is already having an impact on the country. Of that group, Michael Bloomberg is one of the most interesting and straightforward, and he agreed to talk to us about how he came to accumulate $47 billion and what he hopes to accomplish by giving it away.
3: Oh, it's it's more money than anybody could possibly spend on themselves. The issue is what can you do with it? You can't take it with you, although I have a cartoon at home of a guy on his deathbed in the hospital with the rails around and his family looking down like vultures, and he looks up and he says, I know I can't take it with me, but I can take the access code. <laughs>
4: <laughs> at 75, Mike Bloomberg, as he likes to be called, is a long way from retirement. Most days, you'll find him in the gleaming, Oz-like tower that bears his company's name. A high-energy, egalitarian workplace at the crossroads of media, information technology and capitalism. This is an
3: incredible building, office building. It looks like... I don't know what it looks like. What I'm trying to do is to create excitement Mm -hmm. so people say, my goodness, what's going on here? There's something different about this company. The employees, you want them to get psyched. And it's a chance to meet each other. My job is to get people to work together. With free
4: food and no offices, even for Bloomberg, This might be considered one of the world's great corporate headquarters if it weren't for the fact that Bloomberg LP is not a corporation. It's a limited partnership, a private company, and 85% of all of this and a lot more belongs to Mike Bloomberg. Is this a technology company? Is
3: it an information company? Yes and yes. We try to get information people need, store it, present it, let you use it. When Bloomberg started
4: out as a clerk on the Wall Street Trading Desk of Solomon Brothers in nineteen sixty six, he thought there must be a better way to get up to the minute financial data than combing through the Wall Street Journal. He spent fifteen years trying to convince his partners at Solomon that computers could be the answer, and when they fired him in nineteen eighty one, he used his ten million dollars severance to hire three young engineers and launch his startup.
3: When I started the company, it was before PCs were invented. I know you don't think there was a day. We literally built our own, and the Internet hadn't been invented. So we created our own. We'd rent a telephone line and then had a device that let you branch out when you got to Chicago or wherever.
4: Ever since then, Mike Bloomberg has pretty much done things the way he wants
3: to. Where else have you seen a curved escalator? We needed a curved one it fit into the space. And the architect said, doesn't exist. And I said, you go to Japan, you'll find a curve of <laughs> one. And they did, of course.
4: Bloomberg has a degree in electrical engineering from Johns Hopkins University. And it is that discipline of an engineer that defines his character and personality. Detached, analytical, pragmatic. These are some of the words that people have used to describe you. Tell Have these all my
3: relatives? Or? No, 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 no. I don't think so. Well, maybe. <laughs> <It> depends <laughs> um, whether it's good or bad. Blunt. I tend to be reasonably blunt, maybe a little bit too much, but I just uh, always respected people that tell the truth, and I've always wanted people to tell me the truth. Self-confident? Reasonably self-confident, been successful, don't think that uh, I'm uh, I'm infallible, will always make mistakes. Arrogant. You've certainly heard people say that. Um... I suppose I come across that way sometimes, uh, but uh, my mother would have told me, don't.
4: (laughs) Even his late mother would probably forgive him for the occasional lapse of humility, given the size and the scope of the Bloomberg empire. Nearly 20,000 employees in 192 locations around the world gathering, writing, transmitting, and analyzing information that will move markets.
3: These people are doing one-minute radio business updates for a hundred different radio stations around the country.
4: But the real money and most of the profits come from a mysterious piece of equipment known as the Bloomberg Terminal that sits on the desks
3: of titans and traders... This is my desk. ...all over the world. Sound, pictures, Mm -hmm. graphics, tabular data, different ways to look at the markets.
4: It's really a customized keyboard and closely guarded proprietary software linked to a private computer network that provides a volume of data that's unavailable anywhere else. Live streams from 300 stock exchanges, curated tweets, the exact location of oil tankers around the world, the kind of stuff 325,000 professionals pay $25,000 to rent for one year. If you do the math, it adds up to about $8 billion.
3: But let's say you want to look at a stock, General Motors, for example. After using his
4: fingerprint to log into his account, Bloomberg gave us a peek behind the curtain.
3: On the left are all of the companies that sell parts and to General Motors. Mm-hmm. And on the right are all of the companies that buy General Motors output, generally cars the different indices that General Motors stock is in, here are the other companies that compete with them, here are the big holders of their stock, analysts that follow it, who's on the board, who works in the company. Why has nobody else done this? For an individual company to do it, it's probably too expensive unless it's your business. This is our business.
4: Bloomberg has not only left his mark on Wall Street, he has left it on New York City. He took us up in a company helicopter he was piloting to have a look. Aliguardia helicopter, number six, Mike Victor. The thing he likes best about flying, he said, is if you don't follow the rules, you die. By 2001, Bloomberg was already worth $5 billion and looking for a new challenge. He wanted to run something big like the U.N. or the World Bank. He settled on New York City taking leave from his job and spending a quarter of a billion dollars of his own money to get himself elected mayor, three times.
3: Here is the New World Trade Center. You can see the big, tall building and others.
4: The first time he was elected was just two months after 9-11. He managed the resurrection from the rubble.
3: Right through there, you can see the Oculus, which is his big shopping thing. This whole part of Manhattan before was sort of desolate, After 9-11, we now have 25 hotels. Now it's a bustling residential community as well.
4: He saw the city through the economic crisis of 2008, and while he was mayor, development and construction boomed, and the crime rate dropped.
3: Hudson Yards, which is this big development, phenomenally successful development, created an enormous amount of jobs, an enormous amount of new office space.
4: He was sometimes ridiculed for his public health war on smoking, trans fats, and soft drinks, But he points out life expectancy of New Yorkers increased by three years while he was in office.
3: Did you enjoy your time as mayor? Loved every minute of it. It's a wonderful job. The challenges are enormous, but you have a great opportunity to make a difference.
4: He was successful enough in the job to twice consider running for president, but he was never able to find a solid constituency in either party. Last year, he thought about running as an independent and was prepared to spend a billion dollars of his fortune to get elected, they'd say. he had even decided on retired Admiral Mike Mullen as a running mate. And you came close, you looked at it,
3: yep. but you didn't pull the trigger. If I thought we could win I, or had a reasonable chance, I would have done it. It would be totally unlikely, very unlikely, that an independent could win. And in my case, I was mayor for a long time. Uh, People know where I stand. I couldn't pretend to be something I'm not. For the Republicans, I'm Pro-choice, pro-gay rights, pro-immigration. That's a good start there. You'll never get their nomination. On the Democratic (laughs) side, I believe in teacher evaluation. The big banks, we need to help them rather than just keep trying to tear them down. Those are not particularly uh, things that will help you get the nomination.
4: He campaigned hard against Donald Trump, his New York rival, in the general election, calling him a con man at the Democratic convention in Philadelphia.
3: I'm a New Yorker, and I know a con when I see one. Have you spoken to Trump since he's in the White House? Uh, Yes. Once I called him and congratulated him. Uh, We joked about my speech in Philadelphia. (laughs) And before he finished the conversation, he gave me his personal phone number, his cell phone. Uh, I haven't called him, so I don't know whether he'd answer it now, but uh, I hope he does a good job. You're not going to run for office again? Well, I'm 75 years old. It'd be an age issue, I suppose. I've got plenty of things to do, and maybe I'll run for president of my block association, but not much more than that.
4: Bloomberg remains incredibly influential and was received as a world leader when he traveled abroad last month for meetings on climate change. He is still trying to make a difference and using his incredible wealth to do it. Almost all of his fortune will end up with his charitable foundation. He's already given away more than $5 billion to causes that often dovetail with his political interests. There is now a fairly crowded field out there of people who are incredibly wealthy that are giving money to advance their own political agendas. Um,
3: Well, if if
4: the projects they they
3: fund... The Koch brothers, for one, or George Soros... Um, I know know George Soros and I know the Koch brothers. And while I don't agree with any of those three on a lot of things, I think it's fair to say because I know them reasonably well. They really believe and they really are trying to do something. They really want to change the world. You, for example, in the Northeast, couldn't get treated for cancer at any major university or hospital without being in a Koch cancer building. They've given an enormous amount of money. And if you get cancer, you should start saying thank you to the Cokes. To some, it's just another example of the super
4: wealthy having a disproportionate influence on political debate and public opinion. Bloomberg has spent a billion dollars trying to get people to quit smoking. $135 million to battle the NRA on gun control. And $100 million to assist the Sierra Club and its lawyers in shutting down more than 250 coal-fired plants. I mean, you're not out of the political arena altogether. You're, you're no, very but I, but active in, uh, uh, in a number of issues.
3: Coal and the environment being one of them right now. Yeah, but now. I don't know. That, uh, coal is a very dirty fuel. It's been killing people around the world. People are saying no more coal. In a new book with Karl Pope, Bloomberg writes, I don't have much sympathy for industries whose products
4: leave behind a trail of diseased and dead bodies. He's more sympathetic to the
3: miners. Coal miners have lost their jobs. Um, it's very tragic, and we have to do something about it. Technology's come in. Technology has replaced most of these coal miners. They didn't lose their jobs for any reason other than it was automated. And now we have a bunch of people who are, because, no fault of their own, they've lost their job. Those jobs don't exist anymore. Uh, somebody said to, to promise that coal jobs are coming back is like promising the uh, workers who used to work at Eastman Kodak that film is going to come back. Not likely to happen.
4: There are people out there who would say, look, is it Mike Bloomberg's job to give the Sierra Club $100 million to go out and try and shut I'm down 250
3: uh, coal plants? Well, keep in mind, Mike Bloomberg's kids and grandkids are breathing that air, just like the coal miners' families are breathing that air. And the coal miners are the ones that have the conflict. They want their jobs. understand that. They need to be able to feed their families. They also have to worry about their health and the health of their families. Are you giving money to try and find these coal, to try and re-educate and give them new skills? We're certainly working on trying to find ways to create jobs, not just for them, but technology, which is what cost the coal miners their jobs, not the Sierra Club, incidentally. Long before the Sierra Club started this, coal mining jobs went from 250,000 in the country to 70,000 in the country.
4: Bloomberg sees personal
3: philanthropy
4: in the tradition of Carnegie, the Rockefellers and the Mellons, not as a threat to democracy, but as a way to do important things that are not politically feasible. And as always, Mike Bloomberg trusts his judgment. Is there anything you want
3: that you don't have? I like what I see when I look in the mirror. If I get sentimental, I look and say, oh, it's a bad day. They beat up on me, this, that and the other thing. But you know... Uh, We've spent a billion dollars trying to convince people to not smoke. It's been phenomenally successful. We've probably saved millions of lives. Um, There aren't many people that have done that. So, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm not sure I'm going to stand for an interview. I'm going right in. (laughs) Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play It at play.it.
2: President Trump's attempts to impose a ban on travelers from half a dozen Muslim-majority nations have been stymied by federal judges, highlighting the power of the courts to act as a lever against executive power. Tonight, we talk with a prominent and controversial judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, Alex Kaczynski, a conservative appointed by President Reagan. His Court of Appeals, the nation's largest covering the western United States, refused to lift the block on the president's travel ban in February and is scheduled to weigh in on the revised ban next month. We sat down with Judge Kaczynski to discuss his distrust of authority, his crusade against dishonest prosecutors, the so-called Muslim ban and what he thinks of President Trump singling out and attacking federal judges. Let's say, hypothetically, that President Trump decided to single you out. How would you handle it?
6: Well, so long as he spells my name right, it's okay. Really? (laughs) Yes.
2: Judge Alex Kaczynski, one of the country's most influential conservative federal judges, has some advice for the president.
6: My advice would be to whoever is going after judges by name, whether it's the president or anybody else, I think it's a terrible idea. I don't think it's a very smart thing to do.
2: Is there an etiquette that this isn't done?
6: I think that litigants before the court should be very careful about insulting the people who make the decisions.
2: Are you suggesting the president needs to be careful?
6: Yes, when the president is a litigant, I think it's wise for him to not to comment on the judges. It's not going to help anything. All it's going to do is emphasize uh, the weakness of your position.
2: So he's just advertising that he's on shaky ground.
6: I think it uh, has a tendency, yes.
8: A judge has just blocked our executive order.
2: Not only has President Trump castigated individual judges, he has targeted Judge Kaczynski's Ninth Circuit court, saying it should be split in two.
5: People are screaming, break up the Ninth Circuit. Take a look at how many times they have been overturned with their terrible decisions. Take a look.
6: The Ninth Circuit can't be split and it won't be split. It's a terrible idea.
2: Why is it a terrible idea? The president himself has come after the circuit saying that 80% of your decisions are
6: overturned by the Supreme Court. Generally, when the Supreme Court takes cases, they take them to overturn. They overturn something like 70 or 80% of all cases that they take. So we're right there, sort of in the middle. No ban, no wall. Mr. Trump's quarrel with the Ninth Circuit heated up
2: after it upheld a lower court's blocking of his controversial travel ban.
5: Aren't our borders getting extremely strong?
2: In the opinion, the judges noted that during the campaign, candidate Trump made numerous statements about his intent to implement a Muslim ban, which would be unconstitutional. But in this case, Judge Kaczynski sides with the president. He wrote in a dissenting opinion that you can't hold an elected official hostage to every statement made while campaigning, when in truth, the poor Jlub's only intention is to get elected. In defending the travel ban, you talked about the First Amendment.
6: The First Amendment is really at the very core of uh, political speech. And political speech is the very core of the First Amendment. So we want to be very careful to make sure that candidates for office are free to express their views so that people will make an informed choice. We don't want them holding back and sort of uh, concealing their views and then disclosing them afterwards.
2: Holding a candidate's statements against him, he wrote, will chill campaign speech.
6: Candidates will promise the sun and the moon, And everybody understands that you're not going to get the sun and the moon. (laughs) You're probably not going to get either. What about when a president lies? Well, you've read The Prince. Uh, Machiavelli said that it is the duty of a prince to lie. Is that the way you see it? I think in certain circumstances it's probably right. You are being unreasonable. Being That's provocative is classic Kaczynski. That point, you could have said,
2: bam. Another example, his support Agent. of the death penalty, but not by lethal injection.
6: I think use of lethal injection is a way of lying to ourselves uh, to make it look like executions are peaceful, are benign, are sort of like going to sleep. Uh, And they're not. They're brutal things. Now, you have proposed alternatives. You prefer firing squad
2: to lethal injections.
6: Never fails.
2: But you also said the
6: guillotine? That's right. Really, the guillotine? Come on. Well, you know, uh, it's 100% effective, and it leaves no doubt that what we are doing is a violent thing. If we as a society are willing to take away human life... We should be willing to watch it.
2: You know, you're very soft-spoken, and you have a very placid look on your face, and you say very outspoken, almost incendiary things like that. (laughs) I think sometimes people sort of miss the provocation of what you're saying.
6: On the contrary, the softer you speak, the more the provocation is heard.
2: Judge Alex Kaczynski has spent over three decades on this bench at the Ninth Circuit. We couldn't. In his rulings on thousands of cases, there's one constant a deep rooted distrust of authority, which, like his thick accent, is a product of his
6: childhood. I was born under communism. Where were you born? I was born in Romania, and I know what it's like to live in a system where you can't speak, you have to whisper. Uh, where, where the state is so pervasive and, and so intrusive.
2: Kaczynski was the only child of Holocaust survivors who raised him a committed communist, which he remained even when his parents decided to defect when he was 11.
6: As we were leaving Romania, we were on the train. I still remember having these thoughts and plans about how I was going to start a workers' revolution in the West. And then we got to Vienna. And I discovered chocolate and bubblegum and bananas. And, my God, I became an instant capitalist. By the time
2: he and his parents moved to Los Angeles when he was 17, he was all-American with a streak of flamboyance as when he made his TV debut on The Dating Game up against Squiggy of Laverne and Shirley.
4: And we'll try it with bachelor number one first. Would you please say good afternoon to Rita?
6: Good afternoon, Rita.
4: Thank you. Number two.
6: Good afternoon, flower of my heart. He got the
2: girl, but then... She stood him up. He had better luck at UCLA Law School, where he finished top of his class and then landed a job in Washington working for President Reagan who later appointed Kaczynski to the prestigious Ninth Circuit when he was just 35, the youngest in a century. He quickly emerged as a brilliant, conservative legal thinker, but with an independent streak. Do you know the word that's used most to describe you?
6: Handsome. It's quirky. Oh, quirky, yes.
2: (laughs) Take his hobbies. (laughs) Yeah, chicky, chicky, chickies. Raising pet chickens... Snowboarding, and as you can see and hear on YouTube, bungee jumping. Have there been setbacks in your career? I've had a pretty. Uh... You had one big setback, public, embarrassing.
6: Yeah, I should have been more careful.
2: In 2008, he admitted to storing sexually explicit photos and videos on a publicly accessible website.
6: What happened? Oh, I had a bunch of stuff on the computer, uh, and I didn't lock it up. Raunchy stuff. Some of it was raunchy.
2: He apologized, and he was admonished by a panel of judges.
5: All rise. The United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit is now in session.
2: Kaczynski has made a name for himself with his readable and colorful court opinions. What's the most outrageous thing that you've done as a judge?
6: I thought somebody needed to come out. In favor of lying, just as something that, that... So I wrote this opinion basically saying all the ways in which people lie all the time in their lives. You know, they avoid to avoid hurt feelings. You know, you say, oh, how do I look today, honey? <laughs> oh, you look wonderful. You know,
2: he you concluded know. that you with know. the exception of fraud lying. or perjury, lying is a First Amendment right. Another big exception, prosecutors lying in court. He says he has seen that too many times, and he's on a crusade
6: to stop it. There have been any number of documented instances of prosecutors doing things that are dishonest, slimy.
2: He lectures about prosecutorial misconduct and rails about it from the bench.
6: See whether they really want to stick by a conviction. This was obtained by lying prosecutors.
2: The judge says he has seen prosecutors distort evidence, coach witnesses, pile on charges to force guilty pleas, and fail to reveal facts that could help or be exculpatory to the defense, which they're legally required to do. How much of a stigma is it to not turn over exculpatory evidence? Is it a huge blemish on a prosecutor, on a lawyer?
6: I don't think so. I think they consider it fundamentally in the caps. Really? Yeah. Maybe they won't admit it, but I think that's how they see it.
2: Statements like these have earned him his fair share of criticism, including from his fellow judges. But he wonders how many of the 2.2 million people behind bars are innocent.
6: Even 1% would be 20,000, 22,000 people. That's a lot of people. And I think 1% is probably a fair guess. We have this notion in this country that we've got the best system in the world. It's infallible. If anybody gets convicted, they must be guilty. It's just not so.
2: Where are all the other
6: judges? They're seeing the same thing you're seeing. Some speak out, but judges of the class are not a speaking out group. So why are you doing it? Do you think it's brave? You know, I don't think it's brave. I have life tenure, There's not much they can do to me, Uh, so, so I don't think it's brave.
2: He feels the same way about politics, calling on his fellow federal judges to take President Trump's criticisms in stride. The courts are not helping us, I have to be honest with you. It's ridiculous. Somebody said I should
5: not criticize judges. Okay, I'll criticize judges.
2: There are those who believe that today, with the White House and Congress under Republicans, that it is incumbent upon the court system to do double duty, to be the great balancer against perhaps overweening power.
6: That's certainly not our job. We are there to protect against abuses, but we're not there to be a political counterforce. But what happens when two branches are in one hand? If they're both in the same hands, it means that the country, the people want to move in that direction. I don't think it's the job of the judiciary to stand in the way. But do
2: you feel an increased tension?
6: Well, it's not that unusual for presidents to take strong positions on cases decided by the courts. But, you know, Leslie, that's why the Constitution wisely gave us life tenure. They can talk about us, (laughs) but they can't remove us.
3: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
5: In the coming days, America goes to the races. Weekend after next, it's the Kentucky Derby, followed by the Preakness and the Belmont, the Triple Crown. And this coming weekend, there's a horse race you may not know about, the Maryland Hunt Cup the biggest, most demanding event there is in the world of timber racing. It's the American version of steeplechase, and the course is not for the faint-hearted. It stretches four miles over the Maryland countryside, over three times the length of the Kentucky Derby track, and there is a major, sometimes dangerous challenge for both horse and rider, the timber. Twenty-two wooden fences to jump, some of them five feet high. Much of our report on the world of timber racing was shot with a dozen or so small cameras on the ground, in the air, and right in the saddle. We're riding with jockey Eric Perez on a horse named Touchdown Tony.
8: Come on, Tony.
5: It's one of the many races in the fall and spring when timber jockeys roam the rolling hills of Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania in the run-up to the Maryland Hunt Cup.
8: Hey, give me some roof!
5: The sport originated in Ireland 250 years ago, when horsemen raced through the countryside, jumping hedges along the way. The timber fences used in this country are more intimidating. Some are on a slant, some over water. For horse and jockey, each jump is tricky. You're approaching a five-foot fence. What's in your head? Well,
7: number one, you hope you've been living, right? <laughs>
5: Patty. Thanks. Patty Nelson is a legendary jockey and trainer from a family that's been riding and racing since 1875. He won his first major race when he was 15 and won the Maryland Hunt Cup three times. Can you tell us what it's like to feel the exhilaration? There's just
7: some magic about the power of that animal underneath of you. And then when you ask him for everything he's got the last quarter of a mile or something like that and there it is it is a marvelous feeling this only comes from doing it really it is great
8: this is to me the most natural form of equestrian sport all right let's watch
5: joe davies trains both horses right, and so riders nice. at his maryland farm
8: that was a lovely jump there oh you know they all did it fluidly easily let's just look at him so takeoff's important and so is landing you can hear him hit the fence Yeah, I mean, occasionally they'll tip that with their hind legs. But we put timber shins on, which are protective pads, so they don't really feel it.
5: For jockeys, the perfect jump involves horse psychology
8: and plain old horse sense. Being a good jockey is really learning how to read a horse and stay the heck out of their way. In the crucial seconds before liftoff, says
5: Davies, you can read a horse by watching the ears. A
8: horse's ears will tell you what he's thinking about. And if you're doing this and kicking him and pulling on him, his ears will go back. He'll be paying attention to you. If you can be as quiet and still as a mouse, then the horse doesn't think about you. His ears go forward. He's paying attention to what's in front of him. He sees the fence, and he jumps it perfectly every time. And there is something else, that
5: indefinable chemistry that produces in love, in art, in horse racing, something greater than the sum of the parts.
8: You can take the fifth-best horse and maybe the tenth-best jockey, and together they can be magic. Or
5: you could take the best horse and the best rider, and there's no magic, and It won't be anywhere near their potential. Correct. Many of the rituals of the timber race are similar to what you see at Churchill Downs or Belmont or Pimlico. The crowd is well-heeled. The hats are outrageous. There's tailgating, and there's grazing on both sides of the fence. Here's your betting, here's your odds. But the betting is strictly small change, and so is the purse money. A mere hundred thousand dollars for the Hunt Cup versus two million for the Kentucky Derby. Success at timber racing requires a horse with both speed and stamina. Speed to propel them over the fences and the finish line. Stamina to keep going for four miles. As a result, both horses and jockeys are often bigger, sturdier than the ones at flat tracks, as people here call traditional oval racetracks. And it's not unusual to see women competing in such a rough and tumble sport, sometimes finishing first. This is a sport in which men and women compete together. They do. Meaning women are pretty damn good. Yep, very good.
8: I knew as soon as I started galloping racehorses, I'm like that was the direction that I was going to go in.
5: Patty Nelson's daughter Kathy and her sister Santa say it was more than just family tradition that hooked them on timber racing.
8: It's the adrenaline rush. We would definitely be self-proclaimed adrenaline junkies, I would say.
5: Santa won the Maryland Hunt Cup in 1993. Kathy won it as a trainer in 2002. Racing, they say, plays to women's strengths. How do you think women are better at it?
2: You know, if you're 130 pounds, you're not going to be able to bully a 1,200-pound animal. You're going to be able to coax them into doing something, but you're probably not going to be able to muscle them into it. Yeah.
8: You hungry, bud? I feed my horses every afternoon. I love it. How you doing, Pam? I love to hear them winning to me, and, you know, it's a nurturing job, in a way, is to see them flourish. Hungry? Yeah. So it's something that just gets in your blood.
5: But part of it is the danger. Part of it is the risk. The danger.
8: Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I've broke both my wrists, my knee, you know.
5: It's something jockeys train themselves not to think about a misstep by the rider, a horse that loses altitude and trips on the timber.
6: That was Haddock who lost his rider.
5: Even worse, rear ending or trampling someone who's fallen in front. Swayo lost
8: his rider at
5: the fence. Falling horses usually roll with it. Very few are badly hurt. The riders are something else.
7: I don't, still don't know whether I got kicked or the horse's head flew up and hit me in the cheek, but I broke my jaw and knocked out eight teeth, which is pretty good, a pretty good blow to the face.
5: And if they gave a glutton for punishment cup, it would probably go to Mark Beecher, an Irish jockey who's a regular on the timber circuit here. Fractured my cheekbone, my two front teeth are gone, I've broken two. Collarbone twice, this one once, dislocated this shoulder twice, broken two ribs here, three ribs down my back, broken my ankle. You're right, you got to be crazy to want to do this. It's the thrill. it's the buzz. But timber jockeys cannot live by thrill and buzz alone. Since there's not much money in the sport, most riders have to have a real job. From a very young age, I was always obsessed with horses. James Steerhoff is a man with a double life.
0: I have had some amazing opportunities and amazing experiences.
5: During the week, he works at Brown Advisory, a financial firm in Baltimore, where he's immersed in the fine points of managing money, helping clients figure the risk and rewards of investing. And away they go! But weekends, it's the risk and reward of timber racing. And as a jockey, Steerhoff has quite a resume. So what's it like for you to win the Maryland Hunt Cup? It was uh, unreal.
6: Twildu and James Steerhoff jumping now.
5: It was both unreal and unlikely. Here he is in 2010 atop Twildoo, a horse he'd never raced before. Its trainer, Billy Meister, planned to ride Twildoo himself, but was hurt in a fall and called Steerhoff to take up the reins.
0: And I said, I mean, I'd love to, but I don't really know that this is a great idea. I'm at home with the flu, Billy says. Not to worry. I rode the best race of my life with 104 fever. You'll be fine. But it
5: says something that Billy wanted you on that horse.
2: Yes. Twildu trying to come back again on the inside. Private attack leading towards the final fence.
5: At the finish, it came down to Stierhoff on Twildu and Mark Beecher, the man of many fractures, on private attack.
2: With Twildu on the inside,
8: private attack is going to have to settle the second.
5: Twildu. Stierhoff not only won the cup in 2010, he did it again two years later. I was able to achieve something that I never really maybe thought was possible. And, man, how lucky am I? And there is a certain horse that might be asking himself the same question. He is senior senator, once and also-ran, now a star. God, it's majestic, isn't
8: it? I think he likes you. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Before trainer Joe Davies bought him, he was a flat-track racer with a mediocre record and a nasty reputation
8: for acting up. Had to tranquilize him every day to get him out onto the racetrack. We knew he was difficult because he would throw his jockeys on the way to the start. He would throw his jockeys on the way to the start. Every time.
5: It got so bad the track veterinarians
8: wouldn't go near him. The trainer who had him before us said, I want you to know I've been training horses for 35 years. This is the craziest horse ever looked for a bridle. <laughs> You're the <And> craziest <laughs> horse ever to look for a bridle.
5: You know that. Davies and his wife Blythe, a legendary rider now trainer, specialize in horses that flamed out on the flat track, but show promise as timber racers, giving them a second chance. Is it different riding this horse? Yeah. How so?
2: Because he's such a special jumper.
5: The key was letting him run free. During his flat track career, he'd spent countless hours pinned up in his stall, miserable,
8: angry. We turned him out in a big field and he became a happier horse really almost the first hour he was here.
5: The question was, would he jump? Some horses love it, some don't. The answer wasn't long in coming. Senior
8: Senator was a jumper even without a rider. We just figured out how to get him to do what really is natural and what this horse was just put on this earth to do, which is to run
6: and jump. Senior Senator has led a good portion of this race
5: his biggest challenge came a year ago at the Maryland Hunt Cup against a strong field of the bravest horses and riders.
6: Racing around the turn with a big lead. Senior Senator is the one to catch.
5: But in the stretch, he lost the lead and gave it a last-chance burst of energy.
6: Battling through
2: the stretch. It's got Senior Senator coming back again on the outside. Senior Senator.
8: From crazy horse to champion. He didn't need discipline. He didn't need to be manhandled. He just needed to be understood. And I feel like that's what we were able to do. Ah, oh, now what is he saying there?
5: Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy with all this attention. Is that right, yeah, Joe? Yes, that yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> he can still be temperamental, skittish at bad time, often a bit of a prima donna saddling up for a race. But he was a perfect gentleman accepting a sweet potato treat from a perfect stranger who happily survived with all ten fingers intact. There you go. In other words, senior senator, the horse to beat at the Merlin Hunt Cup this coming Saturday is a lot like many talented humans.
8: He hangs on the edge of sort of insanity and brilliance.
5: Which is also a good description of what it takes to triumph in timber racing for man or beast.
4: Now an update on a story from six months ago. That's when we interviewed an angry Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. After a failed coup last July, which is aides blamed in part on the United States, Erdogan began arresting thousands of political opponents and shutting down opposition media under a temporary state of emergency. Last Sunday, by the thinnest of margins, Turks approved a referendum expanding Erdogan's powers to what critics have called authoritarian rule. On Tuesday, Parliament extended the state of emergency, allowing Erdogan to rule by decree for another three months. The European Union called for an investigation into possible voting irregularities, and President Trump called to congratulate President Erdogan on the results. I'm
0: Steve Croft. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.